Hello everyone and welcome back to Sightless Fun, a podcast about board game accessibility for people who are blind and visually impaired. I'm your host, Ertai Shashko, and if you're coming back from the last episode, I'm here with Nancy and Ryan. Welcome back, guys. Hey, good to be here. So uh, this is part two of our 15 Gateway Games for the Blind special. And if you haven't listened to part one yet, I highly recommend going back one episode and listening to that first, where we talk about gateway games in general and talk about six games in total. So two from our top five lists. And in this episode, we're going to continue with our top three lists. So without further ado, Nancy, which game is your bronze medalist? (laughs) Um, I would choose Citadels here. I like Citadels because it has uh, an opportunity for players to take on a secret role each turn, and that role differs. So the way this game works, your goal is to build up your city, and your goal is the, the first player to build seven districts in their city is going to uh, end the game. But again, there's no player elimination. Everybody gets to stay till the final turn. So each round you begin, um, there are eight rolls in the game, and you shuffle these rolls, and they get passed around, and each player picks one roll and keeps it secret. And so in the game, I have brailed just the name of the roll on the card. So um, rolls might be things like witch or thief. Um, Each of these, or king, each of these things has a different ability. So... We'll talk about some of what these these characters can do uh, when I talk about how the game is played. So after you, uh, after everybody has picked a role, the person who is the current king starts calling, and each role has a rank. So they might say number one, and the rank one character is the witch. And so if somebody picked the witch, they get to go and they say, hey, I've got that one. And then they take their turn. And if no one picked the witch, then we move on to number two. So the witch, for example... Uh, gets to bewitch another character. So she might say, well, I'm going to bewitch the bishop. And if someone has chosen the bishop for their role this turn, then because they're bewitched, you get to take that player's turn. Then um, number two, so you go through the roles like that. So number two is the thief. And the thief can steal money from another character. And all these different roles have different abilities. So on your turn, you get to take resources. So you take either uh, two gold or you can draw two district cards and add them to your hand. And these district cards are things that you're going to build. Now, um, you build districts by paying gold and you get to build one district a turn. um, Unless you're the architect, in which case you can build two. That's their special ability. And... Um, so after you build a district and you do that by paying its coin cost, um, so, and then your turn in. So turns are fairly quick. And one of, that's one of the things I like about this game too. And most of the cards don't require a lot of braille. There are some districts with special abilities, but most of the cards, I just really say, you know, it's this color because color matters in the game and it costs this much to build it. And, the cost of the build to build it is also the number of victory points it counts for at the end of the game. So most cards are very straightforward in what they have on them in Braille. And um, for those districts that do have special abilities, 
Um, I you have to look them up in your notes to find out what they do because again that has the whole problem of there's too much text to fit on the card. So you play the game each round. You pick a different role and um, you know you try to guess of course what the players before you picked and you have some knowledge of that um, because you know if you're late in the game you can see what roles are missing, but that doesn't mean that. Um, all those roles are taken because when the roles are passed around before they're passed around, a couple of roles are selected and placed face down. So nobody knows what they were. So those are out of the running as well. And so you don't know if the face down roles, you know what those face down roles are. Anyway, it's a good game and um, it's, there is definitely some take that in the game because you can pick a role that, you know, affects another player's turn or takes their resources, that kind of thing. Um, so it, it is definitely a competitive game, um, but it plays fairly quickly. At the end of the game, after someone purchases or places their seventh district in their city, then uh, we finish the round and then you score the game. And so um, scoring is basically things like the first person to complete their seven districts gets four points. Anyone else who gets all seven districts in that, that round um, is going to get two points. And then, of course, for all the districts you built, you add up how much it cost you to build them, and those are victory points. And then you, um, the districts come in different colors, as I mentioned. If you have one of every color, you're going to get three points for that, things like that. And so you, you total up all those points, and the person with the highest number of victory points wins. And uh, this is a game I showed to uh, a friend of mine who is blind who... Uh, had not played many board games, and she was completely addicted and ended up playing several games. She actually, she's like, I'll sit out the first game because I don't know if I'll like it. And then after we played a game, she's like, okay, let's play. So uh, we ended up playing a few games just to to satisfy her her interest in the game. So um, it's it's a good game, and it's it's not Braille heavy, but it, it does require Braille, and it does require... I don't know how you would do anything with those secret roles if if you couldn't braille them. So that's that is one drawback to the game. But if you do read braille, I think it's a fun game. Yeah, that was I was going to ask you about uh, because uh, I believe this is a game that would work very well with my group. And I also was looking at another game from the same designer called Mission Red Planet, mm-hmm. which uses uh, the similar like uh, calling out the characters but instead of calling out characters in that game it's basically counting down uh, from nine to one and in that game uh, you don't have those building cards so so that was in mission red planet i believe the main problem in citadels is the building cards because the character cards i guess you can uh, easily mark them because there's a total of seven uh, of eight Yes. Right. And you can just use the card corners and just put some tactile stickers at those corners to mark them. But the buildings could be problematic. And is there any chance that we could get away without brailing those cards? I don't think so, because your hands are really secret information, too, especially because other people can steal cards from you, so you don't want them to know how tempting or not tempting your hand is. Mm. So I'm not sure. And the the newest version of the game has 
three different sets of characters that you can play. So, um, and you can technically mix and match them, but it means that there's a lot of different hidden rules that you can take on each turn. Um, you only play with eight each game, but it's just that you have choices yeah. as to which eight to use, and that's it's cool. It's- yeah, yeah, it's it's a nice like um, my group does enjoy hidden uh, role games, and they also enjoy the take that mechanic quite a bit. Mm-hmm. That's why I think this could be a great choice uh, for my group. And it seems that it also plays well with two or three people. That's true. It does. And not many like hidden role games do that. So, Ryan, have you ever played Citadels? I have not. I tend to avoid games that have hidden card hands that you have to manage. Yeah, it's it's a huge problem. Uh, the hidden cards can be a big problem. And... Yeah, especially if there are many of them and you can't really find a way to mark them in a way that would make sense to you, so without Braille. So that was Nancy's game number three, Citadels. And what's your number three game, Ryan? My number three is Jamaica. A game where you, up to six players, race their pirate sailing ships around the island of Jamaica. So, with each round, a player is going to start, and they're going to be the captain. That captain is going to roll the two dice that determine how much of whatever actions they select they're going to be able to take. So they're just regular, chunky, wooden, six-sided dice. They get rolled, and so with every player having a hand, a starting hand of three cards, every player having their own deck of cards, those cards are divided into... A daytime and a nighttime action, which could include moving forward, moving back, getting food, gold, or cannons. So, all the players are going to choose one card from their hand. They're going to place it face down as their selected card. After the player, who is the captain, specifies whether the, which die they want to apply to the daytime actions and which die they want to apply to the nighttime actions. Once every player has selected their, their one action card, starting with the captain, they're going to reveal theirs, and they're going to do their daytime action first. So if it's, say, move forward, and they rolled, say, a four and a five, and selected four for daytime and five for nighttime for some reason, and their card says move forward for the daytime action and get food for the nighttime action doing the daytime first they're going to move four spaces forward and do whatever that space does either they're paying food paying gold collecting one of the hidden treasure cards or the the good part fighting with other players if they happen to be on the same space and then the nighttime action will be to collect f- five food tokens you have a board that represents the hold of your ship. It's got five spaces. And in those spaces, you're going to place a stack of something. It's either going to be food, gold, or cannons. You can't add to those stacks. You can throw them away if you want to replace them with a stack of a different type. Every th- oh, and, and a stack is all of one type of, of the, the three resources you get. There's a special place where you put your 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 treasure cards, and so as you're as you're moving around the board, 
There's a few different paths you can take. Um, the longer paths tend to have a treasure chest spot somewhere that if you land on it, you'll get one of those hidden treasure cards. But the, the interactive part is when players end up on the same space and they got to roll off and fire those guns to uh, steal stuff from each other. The, the winner gets to either take one stack or one of the hidden treasure cards. And those treasure cards are, are anything from more points to less points to cards with special abilities. And so the object here is to make one complete circuit around the island of Jamaica. The player who crosses the, the starting line of Jamaica ends the game. The player with the most points wins. And those points will be in the form of gold coins and whatever position they are um, as they approach that line. Obviously, the largest number of points will be after you cross that line, but you'll still get points for a number of positions behind that line. So players will still get some points uh, unless they're doing really badly and they're behind the skunk line, in which case they actually get like a negative five penalty. It can happen. Uh, it doesn't take terribly long to play, and the reason it's number three in my gateway game selection is that it provides that familiarish theme of a Age of Sail, pirates, who doesn't like pirates, come on, um, with the idea of going around a track, moving, moving along spaces and doing things, with... Uh, the, the, the card selection, action selection, the idea that you, you can plan ahead on where you want to go and what you're going to get. There's some player interaction with regards to ship combat. One of the things that forces players to move backward in the game is an inability to pay what you, the, the cost of landing on the space you're on which you could actually use ta uh, in a tactical way. So you land on a space, um, it requires three food, you only have two. You have to pay what you can afford, and then you'll move backward a space at a time until you land on a space that you can't actually pay. And so if you, you could empty out a couple of your, your hold spaces, but if, say, you're trying to get to a space that has a, an unclaimed treasure chest on it or you're trying to move backward to get to a player that you can fight you may actually be okay with not being able to afford to pay at the stop your movement card or, or movement action lets you move on um, and that sort of thing can can go on anywhere on the board uh, i think it makes the game fun and interesting the way I play it as a player needing setting assistance is that I wait for everyone else to pick their action card, and then I get some help. I pick last. That becomes a little more difficult um, when I'm playing the captain, but the only other thing that the players know are the other two cards in my hand on my turn. As the captain, I'm going to get to do my actions first, so no one can stop me. So it doesn't really matter if they know which card I've selected or not, even though um, I would actually have to select my card uh, first-ish. The treasure cards are a little more difficult. I have marked them so that I, I can separate the ones that are victory points from the ones that are special abilities, so I can reveal those cards and use their abilities. But otherwise, everything else is 
is pretty open. I usually just ask the questions about, all right, if I wanted to move forward or backward with this number, this number, where would that put me? That sort of thing. And then I make my decisions based on that. Again, once players select their cards, there's no way for people to interfere with each other. Although the player order may be important if you're trying to figure out, okay, where am I going to be when they maybe get to do this are they, am I going to be in combat with someone? Do I want to be in combat with someone? That sort of thing. Uh, those are my thoughts on Jamaica. That sounds like a fun game. Yeah. Uh, I talked to Ryan about this game a couple of times, actually, because I'm missing a racing gaming in my collection. Well, I have Camel Up, but that's not much of a racing game. It's more of a betting game because you don't actually control the camels. So you're betting on them. And in Jamaica you are actually controlling the ship that's racing. And it does have clever mechanics. And uh, I remember I was looking at the cards to see how I can mark them so I can distinguish them. So, but yeah, as Ryan said, like you can actually play uh, by waiting for everyone else to pick their card and then just uh, show the others what you have in hand and... Yeah, decide afterwards. And that does work. I do something similar with Roll for the Galaxy. We all roll our dice. And then, you know, I pick my where I'm going to allocate my dice after everybody else has done so. I believe Ryan uses this trick in other games as well. Uh, Seven Wonders is another one, isn't it, Ryan? Yeah, in the, the difference between uh, something like Seven Wonders and this is that with Seven Wonders... Once you select your one card, you're going to pass your hand to the player to your left or right, depending on what round you're in. You're going to get a new hand of cards that that gets progressively smaller and smaller. Um, And everyone is revealing their card and doing their thing at the same time. Whereas with Jamaica, well, everyone has to select the card and lock in. They are doing them a turn at a time, starting with the captain player and going clockwise. Also, too, um, where you're drawing from a shared deck in Seven Wonders, in this one, every player has their own deck. Now, the decks are all the same, but they get shuffled up, so the order in which those cards come up will be different for that player. And and at the end of their turn, they get to draw up to their their hand of three cards again. I think having three cards makes it easier to keep track of what sort of actions you can choose from. And it's always in sets of two. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's also easier for modification. Like you can modify a single deck if you wanted to. And like the other players wouldn't have to play with that deck because, uh, or are, are there special abilities for the separate characters or is everyone playing like with the same default i don't know if they have any no what i mean is that for the six decks one per player they all have the same arrangement of actions Uh okay so they're all identical in that respect but every player plays with their own deck yeah so but you can like if you wanted to modify the cards so for instance you wanted to braille them or just mark them up you can just pick one of those decks and instead of marking like every deck, every color, you can just pick one. Yes, you could do that. It means that you're either playing the same color all the time or you're playing the one color no one ever takes. Right. 
I play yellow all the time now. And so I would just, if there's a yellow deck, I would modify that one. And that makes everybody else happy because they like blue or green or black or purple. And so I don't find anyone ever wants purple if they could choose something else. So if, if I had to choose one deck in a game, I'd probably choose the purple deck if that's an option. Ah, at our house, you would be sadly disappointed because lots of people like purple. <laughs> I usually let everyone else choose because I just go, well, I can't see my color anyway. So <laughs> you guys that <laughs> can see that, like you can choose whatever you want and whatever is left for me, I'll just be that. Oh, well, it it may not matter to me what color I have, but I do need to be a color and people need to remember that I am that color it's certainly easier if I'm always the same color for people to remember and not move someone else's piece thinking it's mine, which has happened in a few games. Mm, right. That's happened to me too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's Ryan's number three, Jamaica. And my number three is also a good six player game. And it's a coincidence that we both picked, uh, me and Ryan, so Jamaica is also another good six-player game. Uh, so my game is Cult Express. It's a spaghetti western-themed game where the players are cowboys uh, riding a train. Instead of having a board, it has this 3D cardboard train that initially, like you build, uh, it comes uh, so it's not assembled when you unbox the game. And that's a place where you will probably need some sighted assistance to assemble the train. My brother did that for me. And in the game, you choose one of six characters. And each one of those characters has a special ability. So uh, there are multiple actions that you can take during your turn. Uh, this is a programming game. So you program your actions. So every player basically selects their actions. And then depending on some sequence, those actions are being resolved. And depending on the actions, uh, things are moving on the train. So there are six actions in the game. So you can fire a gun, you can punch someone else, you can move up or down. So you can move on top of the train or uh, go inside. You can move left and right between the train cars. You can move a marshal, which uh, is an NPC. Uh, it's a non-playable character. And that one is defending... Uh, a bag of $1,000 in the locomotive when you start the game. And if you play the martial card, you can move him left or right. So uh, inside the train, you can loot. Uh, basically, each car in the train has diamonds or bags. The diamonds are marked with $500. So they have a value of $500. While the bags or, well, purses... Uh, have uh, random values from 250 to $500. And those are kept hidden. Uh, so when you pick up uh, a purse, you don't know what you will get. And when you get punched by someone else, uh, they may choose uh, what you will drop uh, from your possession. So if you have diamonds, they will usually go for the diamonds because they are always worth 500 
Uh, otherwise, if they choose a purse, they are not sure whether they'll get 250, I don't know, 300 dollars or 500. So uh, this game has uh, a hidden hand of uh, cards. So, but because the cards are few in number, so there's a total of 10 cards in a player deck and they are all the same. So just like in Jamaica, every player has the same set of cards. Uh, I believe there are two guns, uh, two move up or down cards, two move left or right, one punch, two loot and one martial card. So for you that are doing the math, that should total up to 10. Uh, if it's not, I apologize. I probably forgot a card. And I played this game initially with uh, open hands. So my hands was uh, my hand was open just to see uh, how the game plays exactly before I mark the cards. And interestingly, even though uh, some of the players like knew what I had in my hand, they still wouldn't really bother to calculate what I was going to do. But it's still like better to play it with hidden hands. And I used the technique, I believe I shared this in a previous episode. So basically just use the corners of the cards. I initially sleeved the cards and just put stickers on the corners. So the sleeves also help with telling me which uh, side is up. So... If you don't sleeve the cards, you may uh, rotate the cards one, 180 degrees. And so if you have a sticker on the top uh, right corner, if you flip that, now that will become your bottom left and you can accidentally like play a card that uh, you didn't plan to play. So that's how the sleeves can help because the sleeves, you can uh, determine the right side up by the sleeve opening, basically, from where you slip the card in. The game scales up nicely because it plays in five rounds. And if you have more or less players, that doesn't affect the game time. It usually plays very fast between 30 to 45 minutes. Um, There are also some special events. So each round has... Uh, three or four turns per player and once everyone like plays in their three or four turns you flip the deck that forms up uh, so you flip the pile backwards and in order you resolve the actions that the players took so yeah it's a very fun game it's uh, a good game because it supports up to six players and it's best with six players um the problem besides the hidden information for blind players positioning on the train can be a bit of an issue but it's easily solved with sighted assistance because you can simply just ask where you are currently located or, or where the others are located when you start the round and until everyone plays so until the round is over the pieces won't move so you just like everyone else, you're tracking what will happen based on what people play. Because when you play an action, it's usually uh, public. In, uh, but there are some occurrences where the train uh, goes into a tunnel and that's when the players play their actions face down. So you don't know what they have played. It's a good idea to mark, well, not mark, but 
let the other sighted players know about numbering the train cars. So if the locomotive is number one, the second car is the second car is two, three, four, five. So it's easier to like when you're asking like where am I located, and they'll just say you're in car number three uh, uh, at the top of the car or something like that. Yeah, it's it's a great gateway game, um, very thematic, and. If you play this game, you definitely should have Ennio Morricone running in the background. So something like a soundtrack from the Good, the Bad and the Ugly or for a few dollars more or a fistful of dollars. That's a must. I was thinking Young Guns. Is that a movie? It is. Oh, I haven't watched that. Now you have to watch it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but uh, any Clint Eastwood Western... Yeah, you can just put the soundtrack in the background, and yeah, it's it's a, it's a lot of fun. Uh, it, it was a great hit with my group. So, how did you manage the um, putting in or getting out of the tokens from inside the train? Um, well, that's usually managed by the sighted players, and they, well, the train cars are quite small, so the person with the thinnest fingers usually does the best um and like when i need to loot something and there are multiple choices uh the first thing i do is if there are diamonds i go for the diamonds uh well that's the general strategy i guess uh and if there isn't i just let another player like decide to pick any of the purses randomly and uh yeah one disadvantage is that when you pick up a random like purse with money uh as the blind player i have no idea like what i have picked up and uh, until the game ends i don't know if i'm about to win or not but surprise yeah yeah it can be a surprise i mean depending on the number of purses you can still do a rough calculation whether you're ahead or behind and yeah, usually the person that's the richest at the moment is usually being targeted. <laughs> and yeah, there's also another bonus that you get uh, at the end for the person that has fired the most shots. So your revolver, you have a revolver with six shots and the person that fires the most gets a bonus of $1,000. Yeah, and the player deck, so your uh, deck that you have your cards in may fill up with uh, bullet cards. So if another player shoots you, you receive a bullet card in your deck. And when you shuffle your deck for the next round, if you draw that bullet card, it's basically a wasted action. Like you can't play that. So the more you get shot, uh, the less chance uh, you have to draw an action card. And sometimes you may need to, for instance, pass and draw more cards from your, your deck. So yeah, it's very it's uh, very bad when the whole group gangs up on you and keeps shooting you. It still sounds like fun though. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a quick game. It's fun and yeah, that was uh, my game number three, Colt Express. Let's move to our silver medalist, Nancy. Game number two. My game number two is Code Names. Code Names is a party game, and also a word game and sort of a deduction game. Some people say it's an espionage game, but I'm not super sold on the the theme so much. It's just just playing how it works. So what happens is you put out 25 words on the table. The game comes with a bunch of small cards, lots and lots of them, and they're double-sided, and there's a word on each side. 
And so you create this uh, tableau, they call it, of 25 words. They're laid out in five rows. And then you divide up into teams, and one person on your team is going to give clues, and the other people on the team are going to try and guess the words. So the problem is that um, each... So once the words are laid out, there's another deck of cards that shows which words are your team's words, which, team, which words are the other team's words, which words are neutral words, and then there's one uh, taboo word that you don't want to say. If, you, if your team says that word in response to one of your clues, the game is over and you lose. So you don't want to do that. Okay. Um, now, the first thing I'll say is uh, you don't need to braille this game. I did braille it before I realized how it was played, and now I never touch the cards, which is just ridiculous. So uh, <laughs> I, I don't think you need to braille it at all. So you can play um, as either the clue giver or as one of the people guessing. Um, if you're one of the people guessing, I just write down the list of words that are face up, all 25 words. I just write them all down. Uh, and you can do this in Excel spreadsheet if you're worried about, if you want it to be a five by five, sh five shape. I just write down the words. It doesn't matter. Um, if you're giving clues, then the other person giving clues does need to be cited. And then you have the rest of the people leave the room and, you, and the cited person who's giving clues tells you, these are your words and these are the my words and these are the uh, neutral words and this is the taboo word, right? This is the assassin. And you just write that down and then you can give clues just like anybody else. And so what you get to do, you get to give a one word clue. And the rules tell you, there are a whole bunch of rules about it can't be this kind of word or that kind of word. Maybe it can't be a hyphenated word, that kind of thing. So um, if there are words on the table like oak and maple, let's say, I might say tree. And then I get to say a number that tells how many words reference that. And so I say tree two. And hopefully my team is smart and says oak is... Um, a tree and maple is a tree. Now my daughter's going to kill me for this story, but she, when she saw maple, she's like, "That's not a tree; it's a syrup." <laughs> and so, <laughs> she's not wrong. No, she's not wrong. However, we lost the game because she wouldn't let them say maple. <laughs> oh no! I think it would have been just as funny if. The word was syrup, and she's uh, syrup too. And she saw a table and maple and thought that was also correct. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, um, this game is a lot of fun. It plays very quickly. Um, we often play best of three or something like that. And we divide it or we mix up the teams differently. Like it might be guys versus girls one time, or daughters versus the old people, or, or whatever. And so it's a, it's a lot of fun. And one of the things I like about it is it can handle a large number of players. It's part of why it's a party game. Um, you can play with eight people, right? Or ten people and divide them up into teams and off you go. So I, I enjoy this game. Um, there's a lot of interaction, you know, as people try and, uh, you know, figure out what you're trying to say. Um, in fact, we use a, a little sand timer to make sure that no team goes too long. Yeah. Otherwise, you can debate forever. 
but it's a lot of fun and it really doesn't require any brailing. There are also lots of different games and variations of code names. I learned a while back that we have to be careful. Some of the code names variations are pictures. Yeah. And so you need to be careful because you don't want any of the code names pictures variations because, well, pictures. And so, so such as such as the one called code names pictures. Yes, but there's also like code names Disney. I think it was that turned out to be pictures, and so that was sad. So I gave that one away. Um, in a in a white elephant exchange at Christmas. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting that so. the pictures variant uh, is language independent, but for the blind, it's horrible. Yes, <laughs> it's true. So you get some benefits, but yep. Now, of the word games that you've played, what is it about code names that stands out for you as a a gateway game? Hmm. Um, well, a couple things. First of all, I wanted to have a party game on this list, one that encourages a lot of social interaction and, um, you know, just cooperation between players, but mostly a lot of social interaction and fun. There are other word games, but they, for me, they offer different kinds of strategies like a Quiddler or Palabra, which are more like Scrabble, but with cards. And, um, so you're trying to build words. Um, I like hardback and paperback, which are both Kickstarter games, um, but those are more complex and definitely require brailing and just there. There's a lot of fiddly rules for those, but I, I like words and I, I've always liked games, uh, television show games like Password. And so I thought this one was good because it allowed people to play something kind of like that. and. Uh, Also, for a gateway game, it's, like I said, no brailing, which I think is a huge advantage. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I've been trying to get this game uh, on my table, but uh, every time I do, people ask for that uh, one more game of Secret Hitler, The Resistance, and I just can't get it, Uh, can't get people to try it. There's also a web application uh, so a web app, which uh, is quite accessible uh, on an iPhone or pro- also on an Android using the screen reader there. And uh, I'll put a link to that site as well uh, if you'd like to try the game before buying it. And you, you just need a few pieces of paper just to write the uh well, the, the words down or, well, everyone can uh, pick up their phones if you just want to play on a phone. But yeah, it's it's an easy and quick way to try the game and you can just try it today if you wanted to. I'll have to check hmm. out the app. Okay. So yeah, that was Nancy's number two, code names. Ryan, your number two. My number two in the silver medal position is Flip City. This is a pure card game and uses the deck building mechanism wherein players will start with uh, a deck that is the same as every other player and then they will expand that deck over the course of play by acquiring cards from uh, a central market of, uh, of cards that are like the cards that are in their deck. The thing with Flip City is that the cards are double-sided And so 
when you use your resources to acquire cards, you could acquire them on uh, as one side or the other, so that when you eventually shuffle those cards into your deck, and that's that's the other thing a lot of deck building games tend to do is when you acquire the card rather than it going into a hand, it goes into a discard pile. Eventually, your deck will empty. It'll get shuffled again, and those cards will become available. This game is about pushing your luck to, I guess, build a city tableau sort of thing. So each of the cards are are different types of buildings in a city, so or or places in a city, like the the convenience store, the central park, the office, apartment, things like that. And so you're trying to reveal them from your deck one card at a time. And obviously you can see the top card of your deck, so you know what's coming up. So you can decide, like in, in the case of a lot of games that involve pushing your luck, as to whether you want to continue or not. If you do, there's a, a mechanism that some of the cards have an angry face on it. You get too many of those on your turn, you bust, all of your cards are discarded from play, your turn ends, and play moves to the next player. Should you choose to stop, then you move on to the second part of the phase, which is looking at the cards you have in front of you. Some of them will give you money, and you use that money to acquire more buildings that will go into your discard pile. And uh, eventually you will get more and more of the cards that you want into your deck that will will allow you to satisfy one of the two winning conditions. The first win condition is to have um, eight victory points in cards in one turn. So some of the cards uh, will have a check mark or a number of check marks on them, and those are uh, symbols that represent your victory points. And, and and so you'll start with a few of them in your deck, and you can get more of them from some of the other cards in the, the central market. The other condition is to have 18 cards revealed on your turn, so long as one of those cards is a convenience store. And you could get more of those into your deck. There, there's a stack of, of each of the building types. They're all the same. Uh, so you can get more of them into your deck to increase your chances of of having a convenience store up. But you're 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 trying to sort of build a, an engine with your deck that will let you have the ability to get the number of cards with the number of of what you need to end the game. So I chose this one as my number two because it tends to be a crowd pleaser. I put it in front of people and they just want to keep playing it. It's it's straightforward. There's some iconography that will take a, a little bit of getting used to using because it's not it it's spelled out in the the fold out rule sheet as opposed to being written down on the cards to save space. And some of those icons you won't encounter unless you're using the card on its flipped over side. So you may not use it much to remember them. But I've found with repeated plays that it gets easier and easier to remember what your cards can do and use that towards the strategy you're trying to use to get to where you can possibly end the game with a win. You'll see deck building as a mechanism in a lot of other games that I think are more involved. 
So that's where I feel that it's a it's a good introduction into the hobby with just enough complexity to make it interesting to want to keep replaying it. Cool. And uh, everything's public, right? There's no hidden information in this one. That's correct. And that was one of the reasons I chose it specifically when I was looking at the deck building mechanism is that there's nothing hidden. You're shuffling your deck. This It's not really spelled out, but you're kind of shuffling the deck behind your back or under the table or somewhere where the other players, where you as where the sighted players can't see what's on top of their decks or your decks. But as the blind person, I can't see it anyway. The cards aren't marked. So I'm, I'm not going to know what's on top of my deck. In fact, that makes it good. It, it, I'm, it's a good idea to have the blind person shuffle your deck when it comes time to do that, because they're not going to know what you have. Yeah. Uh, so, so that was one of those things the the no hidden information. I know some games that use the deck building mechanism um, involve discarding the remainder of your hand after you've done what you wanted to do with it. Um, which makes them more accessible than those games that involve an ongoing hand of, of hidden cards you have to manage. With this one, there is no hand. You're just revealing cards off of the top of the deck one at a time. They're not, they're not in play. Their abilities aren't utilized until that card comes off the deck. So if you, if you think you might bust, you can choose to stop. There are some cards that force you to continue playing cards off the deck, whether you want to stop or not, pushing your, your risk of busting. This is another one that sounds like fun. Yeah, uh, after, after this, uh, these two episodes, I think I, I'm in trouble. I'll need to buy new games. <laughs> Me too. And I'm trying not to do that, but I think so. Hey, you have 200. Like, if you go uh, to your shelves and just randomly pick anything. It's true. Or possibly some of the games that have already been mentioned. Yes. Another thing I like about this game is that it makes a good two-player game. If you, you just can't get more than one other person to play. And I find that with this one, as with some other games, the more players you add, the longer it takes to play. So I, th- I consider it to be a good, um, speedy two-player game. I don't think I want to play it with more than three. Just because with every extra player, it tends to add a, a fair bit of extra time. Right. Awesome. So yeah, that was Rand's number two, Flip City. So my number two, my silver medalist is Pandemic, the board game. So the older and bigger brother to Pandemic, the cure. So we briefly talked about some of the problems, but before I get to that, uh, why is this uh, my number two? Well, uh, it's well, it's not my only cooperative game, but it's the cooperative game that I have played the most in my collection. And I so far I have over 35, maybe nearing 40 plays, and I still enjoy it. I was lucky enough to find a friend recently who is interested in cooperative games. So now I have an excuse to buy other cooperative games. Pandemic plays from two to four players. Uh, Usually a game lasts between 45 minutes to one hour. The more you play, the faster the games go. Just like in Pandemic the Cure, you're 
trying to stop four deadly diseases from destroying the world's population. There are seven different characters that you can choose from, and I believe it's the same seven that's that are in The Cure. And they each have separate uh, abilities that they can do. The game uses... The main mechanic in the game is set collection. So you're trying to collect sets of five cards of the same color. So to cure the blue disease, you'll need... So one player will need to collect five blue cards and then visit a research station and find a cure for the blue disease. I talked about this game in episode four, and then I also talked about quarterbacking in that episode. So uh, before talking about quarterbacking, and Nancy mentioned this in part one of this two-parter special, um, the game is quite accessible because everything is public information. And with just one sighted person around, uh, you can easily play this game. Now, uh, it's pretty interesting that Nancy didn't like feel very connected to the game when playing it. Uh, it was It's completely the opposite for me. I mean, I can't really see where the cubes are located on the board, but um, I don't have like a lot of problem to track what's going on the board. Um, I've mentioned this uh, before, like having an average geography knowledge of where the cities are located definitely helps. So uh, that will also help to figure out how the cities are connected with each other. And well, the more you play the game, the more you figure out how the paths are connecting the cities. So you are required to ask less and less questions of how many uh, movement actions it takes to go from, I don't know, Istanbul to Milan or things like that. So, yeah, uh, when it comes to quarterbacking the, or the alpha gamer that Nancy mentioned, then, uh, well, we I talked about this uh, in more detail in episode four. Uh, games that can be quarterbacked are actually very accessible games uh, because they are mostly public information and you should well try to i don't know call the alpha gamer out as to not to do it and i guess that the player is the problem with uh, alpha gamer and it's not really the game's fault i agree with that it's not pandemic's fault it just lends itself to it yeah yeah but uh, if you like try to mitigate quarterbacking you are automatically making the game less accessible to the blind. I mean, you, for instance, um, cooperative, well, semi-cooperative games, for instance, they have some sort of hidden information, either hidden roles or hidden objectives. Now there's something, uh, those cards either need to be marked or you need to use some kind of extra tools to determine what you have in hand. And that automatically makes them uh, less accessible. Ran, do you have anything to compare with The Cure? I'll just say that in if the choice between Pandemic and Pandemic The Cure, um, Pandemic for me, I played a lot of it, so it's just it's played out. I don't consider it yeah. to be a bad choice as a gateway game. And things like the the alpha gaming and stuff, 
those sorts of things, sometimes they just don't show up as emergent gameplay until until the game is out in the market. So uh, I can see where something like this may not have been caught to, I don't know, think of some way to mitigate it. I think maybe there might have been an assumption that if everyone is playing with the same level of engagement, then you might not have this situation of one player trying to play the game for everyone else. And worse luck for those people who just aren't sure about what's going on or uh, what they can do on their turn, um, being more willing to let the more experienced or more um, uh, puzzle-minded person kind of tell them what they think they should be doing on their turn and then just going with it. Yeah, but that's how I become disengaged, because if somebody's just going to tell me what to do, then why do they need me at the table? Absolutely. I agree completely. Yeah, yeah, uh, I I agree with that. And uh, I mean, I have uh, I have had like uh, occurrences where I was actually doing that. And usually that happens when there's one experienced player uh, around the table and the others are new to the game. And yeah, I see how that can be a problem. And so now I try to like not do that. Well, I don't play the game a lot with a larger group. I usually play it with two. And now the other friend that uh, I recently introduced to board games who is into cooperative games is also like he... Uh, I know he, he's he's a video gamer and like he, he gets it. And I don't feel like the need to spoon feed him if you will that makes sense yeah in the rules it says that players should not tell the other players about what cards they have in their hand but there's absolutely no incentive to play that way in a fully cooperative game and it makes the game less accessible yeah yeah definitely i don't know why that that's in the rules because i think you will just waste more time asking people like what do you have in your hand i mean if it's, I don't know. That, that, that's... I, I, I think it was an attempt to mitigate a perceived quarterbacking yeah, without well, maybe, restructuring but... the entire way the game plays. Yeah, well, I guess. But then you have like uh, four blind players uh, around the table. So because the blind player usually like asks, at least I do, like ask uh, what what cards do you have or what colors do you have currently? And after like a couple of turns, I need to ask that again if they updated their hand. So with having those cards hidden, uh, all of the players would be doing that. And I guess that would make the game longer or so. Yeah, that's why I guess at least we always play with open hands. So yeah. That's number two. That was my number two, Pandemic, the board game. Now, we're transitioning to our number one, games. And Nancy? I would say Diamonds won the gold for me. Diamonds is a trick-taking card game. And um, it's the card decks are really straightforward. It's uh, four suits of cards. You're familiar with them. Clubs, diamonds, hearts, and spades. And the cards are just numbered 1 through 15 in each suit. Uh, in addition to that, in the box you have some diamonds. 
And you have little diamonds, which are worth one point, and big diamonds, which are worth five. And you also have little cardboard showrooms. So some of your diamonds, when you're collecting them, will go outside your showroom so everybody can see what you have, and some of them go inside your showroom. When you get a diamond inside your showroom, it's worth double its points. So that's a good thing to do. So, uh, you know, if you're familiar with trick-taking card, card games, and a lot of blind people have played things like hearts and spades, um, things like that, uh, maybe pinochle. Um, so this game, I put this here because there's a, a wide genre of trick-taking card games where they're just trying to differentiate themselves from the games you you know grew up playing. And I like diamonds because... It's got several interesting mechanisms, um, and also because I like the diamonds. I, I, they're just cool. So the way the game plays is, um, you know, somebody leads a card, and everyone has to follow suit if they can. And if they can't, then they can play any card. There is no trump suit in diamonds. The highest card of the suit led wins. Now, the differences between this and other trick-taking card games is, so if, if I lead hearts and you can't play hearts, so you play another card, uh, let's say you play a spade, every suit has a suit action, and the person who wins the trick gets to take the suit action, but anyone who plays a card that is not of the suit led also gets to take a suit action. So if the suits have different actions one of them would be to the diamonds say take a trick or sorry take a diamond from the supply and put it in your sh in your in your vault which is behind your showroom okay and that means you take that diamond it's automatically worth 2 points hearts if you take that suit action says take a diamond from the supply and put it in your showroom so okay that's only worth 1 point spades says take a diamond that's in your showroom and Put it in your vault. Okay, so that increases the points you just got from that diamond. Club says, take a diamond from somebody else's showroom and put it in your showroom. That's how that works. And so there's a lot of strategy when you... Um, before each hand, you're, you're dealt a certain number of cards, uh, often 10, to, but it depends on the number of players. And the dealer gets to pick whether we pass one, two, or three cards. And so you pass them to the left. And so... It's interesting to try and organize your hand in a way that you'll quickly be able to, you know, not follow suit if 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 a suit certain suit is led. So you try to avoid, as they say, yourself in a certain suit. Maybe have no hearts or no spades or something. Um, at the end of the hand, after all the tricks have been played out, then you also get points. Um, each the person who has the most Diamonds gets that suit action, and hearts, spades, and clubs each have... The person who has the most of those gets a suit action. If you took no tricks at all, then you get to take two diamond actions. So automatically you get four points for taking no tricks at all. Anyway, that's how it plays. Uh, the game plays a number of hands based on the number of players. Uh, I have played this with six people. It does... Take a little while if you play it with six people. I think it's good at three or four. Um, this is a game that does require Braille. Uh, your hand is certainly private information. Uh, but it's very easy to Braille because um, you just write like one diamond, two diamond, three diamond, four hearts, you know, five spades like that. 
And I braille both ends of the card so that you don't have that stupid problem where, you know, the card only works one way. And so that uh, is diamonds. Um, I think it's a lot of fun. I've played in a diamonds tournament and did fairly well. Um, And um, I found that even people who had not played trick-taking card games uh, did fairly well learning this one. And we played it over Christmas one year and uh, had a bunch of bunch of new gamers, and they really enjoyed it. And the gamers were both blind and sighted, so this is one of the reasons I like this game. It it plays well whether you can see or not. So that's Diamonds. Nice. Ren, ever played this game before? I haven't. I know of it. Uh, I'm not sure what's wrong with my brain exactly, but when I get to the concept of trick-taking game... I just I glaze over. I, I have no idea why I have a problem learning and understanding how to play these games. Maybe I just haven't met the right kind of trick-taking game. So I, I've avoided playing anything with that sort of trick-taking mechanism in it. Maybe Diamonds is the game I should be playing. So that's Nancy's number one, Diamonds. Ryan, what's your number one? My number one, the one that makes it to the top of all of the games that I consider gateway, is Valeria Card Kingdoms. And that's spelled V-A-L-E-R-I-A. Despite the awkward name, I think it's a great game. And it is mostly entirely a card game. So I'm, despite the fact that it's a, a fantasy-themed game where you're sending your adventurers off to fight monsters, is it's very superficial. The, that's the, the, the familiar part. That and the players rolling dice is the thing that I thought would be uh, something people would recognize about playing the game. On a player's turn, they're going to roll two dice. And, and whatever those dice values are, they're going to get whatever card it is they have in front of them that matches that value. You'll start out with with two cards. Um, and I think they're like num- values four and six. So if you rolled a four and a six, you would get a resource from one and a resource from the other. If you roll a 10 and you had a 10 card in front of you, you could get that as well. You're going to be able to get a lot of stuff, and these are everything is open. The adventurers, like I say, they go from one to twelve. They're out in a market. If you have the resources to acquire a card uh, as one of the two actions you can do on your turn, you just do that. Those actions include either going to the market, going on an adventure to hunt monsters. Or buying one of the, the special victory point cards from, from that separate market. Again, this comes down to the three resources. You've either got your uh, your your gold, your magic, or your shields. And different cards will give you different combinations of those. The magic act as a wild resource for either gold or shields. You spend those to get cards from the different things. The monster stacks only matter insofar as they they give you points, and the player with the most points wins. There are other games that use this method of rolling dice, 
and getting stuff on your turn. Um, I've, I call it the roll and receive or roll and get mechanism. Because the idea here is that the players are going to get something on their turn, whether they're the active player or not. Uh, so some of the cards will let you get stuff on other players' rolls. Some cards will let you get stuff on your rolls. Some cards will let you get stuff regardless of, of who is rolling. Some cards will let you get some stuff. Uh, uh, better things, if it's your turn versus the other player's turn. And it, this is usually identified by color, blue, green, or red, that sort of thing. And so you're going to want to get more cards and a wider variety in order to have access to getting more things, either on your turn or on uh, the other player's turns over time. I think it's it's a great game. It doesn't take long to play. It comes with a, the, a nice... One of the things that I didn't mention about uh, Jamaica, but I'll mention uh, as well with Flurry Car Kings, was that the game comes with a nice molded plastic insert to make organizing uh, your components easier, the setup and teardown smoother, uh, and easier for the blind player to participate in the setup and teardown. With space for more stuff, uh, if there's any sort of expansion stuff that you could get for the game later on. And so that's it. I, I highly recommend Valeria Card Kingdoms. The only thing I find challenging with that one is that you end up with a lot of these resource tokens. You, the, you just you get end up getting piles and piles of these things. And so they're all over the table. And uh, it, it's, it's one of those games where it, would have been nice if they had created larger versions of the resource tokens, uh, which are wood, that represent a larger denomination, like 5 or 10, so that the player doesn't have to have a large stack of them. There is a little counter thing that will allow you to do like a 10 plus, 20 plus, 30 plus, but it's a little awkward to manage using that over just having a massive pile of, uh, of counters in front of you which, I don't know, I guess feels more physically satisfying to have on the table, your loot. Right. Yeah, after looking at this game myself, I'm definitely adding it to my wish list. Um, it really seemed quite interesting. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of fun. I play another game like this one, but I can't think of what it's called. Is it called Machi Koro? Thank you. Yeah, I was thinking of Space Base as well. Yeah. Yeah, Machi Koro started this whole roll and receive thing, uh, and a lot of people would consider it to be uh, perfect for their own gateway game lists, but it has the shortcoming of players spending a lot of turns not getting anything, because it takes time to get more of those, the resources to get more of those cards from the market to fill out your your row of of values 1 through 12 to ensure that you're actually going to get something on your rolls with much with uh, Valeria card kingdoms and space base those games have worked to allow players to get more things more often more easily gotcha i'll definitely check it out um i like machi koro but i'd like to see this one too awesome so that was Ryan's number one, Valeria Card Kingdoms. Okay, it's time for the last game in this special 15 Gateway Games for the Blind. And my number one is Diceforge. So Diceforge 
as the name suggests, is forging dice. So you have these special dice with removable faces. And the theme of the game is basically it's set like the players are heroes. It looks like it's set in Greece, or well, at least it uses Greek mythology. And uh, the heroes pay tribute to the gods, and the gods let them forge uh, those divine dice. So each player has two dice, and in the beginning of the game, uh, each player starts with the same uh, dice, so the same die faces. Uh, one of the dice has a sun shard and gold resources, while the other one has a moon shard, victory points, and uh, gold. So on your turn, so all players roll their dice on everyone's turn. So even when it's not your turn, you roll your dice and whatever you get from what whichever resources you get from that roll, you apply on your uh, player board where you track your resources. Once you ac uh, accumulate enough gold on your turn, you can pay tribute to the gods and basically forge uh, new die faces. So uh, you buy better uh, upgrades for your dice. So die faces can be, instead of uh, giving you one gold, now they can give you four or six gold. Or instead of giving you just one uh, sun shard, they can give you one sun shard plus one gold or uh, four victory points instead of two. And uh, or a combination. Uh, for instance, there's a die face where you can choose whether it's a sun shard, a moon shard, or a gold that you will receive. And uh, it's also so, just like in Valeria Card Kingdoms, every player receives resources on everyone's turn. Besides forging the dice, you can go on epic quests which uh, translated is buying cards from the board. So the board has different uh, sets of cards. You use the sun and moon shards to buy those cards. And those cards give you special abilities, victory points, or uh, they let you buy uh, special die faces. For instance, there's a multiplier die face, uh, which is the die face shows 3x. Uh, and when you roll, for instance, uh, that die face, so a 3x and a sun shard, you multiply uh, the sun shard by 3 and you apply 3 sun shards on your player board where you track the number that you have for that resource. Then there's like a mirror image. You can copy any other player's uh, die face with that special uh, die face. So uh, there are a few of those special die faces that really like spice the game up uh, and you can make certain combos. I played this game uh, two days ago and there was this uh, really uh, neat little combo that was on the last round, like we forced a player, well, we told him that he could buy this multiplier and this multiplier and if he rolls that combination, he'll receive 18 victory points, which was a lot. And uh, he immediately rolled the exact combination that he needed, resulting him in getting those victory points. So that was nice. Um, uh, the game looks gorgeous on the table. The component quality is fantastic, especially for a game that costs, I paid about 28 
British pounds for it. I believe in the US it goes around uh, 35 bucks. And for that price, uh, it's, uh, I don't know, the, the components are amazing. So yeah, the, it also has a very nice insert for organizing the components. And yeah, it's it's a brilliant game. The board also connects with the box. So the box is basically a part of the game. The art connects to it for those that can see it. The player boards are lovely because they're indented and you can use uh, your fingers and feel the number of resources that you have by touch. So the boards are not flat. Uh, they have like these uh, tracker cubes, which you can place on those empty spaces. So you don't have to rely on someone else for that. Now the dice, you can't really feel the dice by touch on what you roll, but since it's just two dice, every time when you roll, the person sitting next to you should probably be sighted so they can just quickly tell you like what you rolled, whether it was one gold plus one shard, sun shard, or two victory points plus, I don't know, four gold, and yeah, stuff like that. So yeah, uh, the game has a set of basic and advanced cards. So those are the, the epic quests that I said that you go to that give different types of abilities. Uh, the basic cards are intended to be played when you are playing the game for the first few times and then the advanced cards uh, open up like new possibilities on the way you can combine some combos. That's Dice Forge. Really enjoyed. Great game. I think this is an excellent pick, Irte. I, I really like it because um, I was at somebody's house one day and they have just a wall of games. I mean, I, I say I have 200. I think they probably have 800 to 1,000. And they're like, let's play Dice Forge. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if I can play it. And I played it without any Braille at all and had a great time. And we, there were, I think there were four players, and I came in second. So I'll take it. Um, awesome. And then I went out and bought the game immediately. I think it's a lot of fun. I like the way you can change the faces on your dice. But I also love the player board because I can manage my own resources and i just love that they recently released uh, an expansion uh, for it um i i wish it supported at least up to five players uh the max number of players is four but um yeah because my group is a bit larger uh that's why i would have loved for it to support well at least five that would have been nice but the expansion adds uh, new cards uh, i believe new die faces as that was one of the complaints that after uh, multiple plays it can become stale like once you find the correct strategy for it on what you need to go to, but there's enough like randomness with the dice that even though if you know the correct strategy, it doesn't mean that you will still win the game. So yeah, my number one game is Dice Forge, and yeah, you should check it out. Uh, Ryan, Nancy, that's about it uh, for this episode. Thank you very much for joining me. Hey, this was a great chat. It was a great chat. Thanks for including me. I've got new games to buy. Yeah, it's like you don't have enough. So yeah, you need more, more games. <laughs> so if you want to contact uh, Nancy, Nancy, where can people reach you? On Twitter, they can reach me at Laura Vara, L-O-R-A-V-A-R-A, or at lauravara at gmail.com. And Ryan? And I can be reached on Twitter at Red Meeple Ryan, R-E-D-M-E-E. -E. 
P-L-E-R-Y-A-N, or by email, redmeepleryan at gmail.com. Sweet. All right. And if you want to uh, ask me any questions or leave some comments about this episode and the one before this one, because this was a special two-parter, you can tweet at me at sightlessfun or send an email to sightlessfun at outlook.com. You can also check out the website at www.sightless.fun. Thank you very much for listening. And remember, you can still have fun while being sightless. This episode was hosted by Ertai Shashko and edited by Alpai Shashko. We'd also like to extend our special thanks to Fighting Windmills for allowing us to use their music in our podcast. You can find them at fightingwindmillsmk.bandcamp.com.